Welcome to Crime Beyond Borders, a podcast series from the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. My name is John Collins, and I'm the Director of Academic Engagement at the GITOC and the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development. GIED is an independent academic journal run by the Global Initiative and published by LSE Press. It is a peer-reviewed, open-access, electronic journal publishing research on the relationship between illicit markets and development. You can find a link to the website in the summary to this episode. In this episode, we are going to discuss the latest GIED special issue on drug policy history, design and practice in Asia. To discuss this topic, I was delighted to speak to Yun Huang, a postdoctoral researcher at Shanghai University, Aizel Sultan, lecturer at the Technical University of Munich and editor-in-chief of Drugs, Habits and Social Policy Journal, and Khalid Tanasti, a researcher at the Center on Conflict, Development and Peacebuilding at the Geneva Graduate Institute and visiting scholar at the ICPDS at Shanghai University. So Khalid, as one of the editors of the special issue, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about its genesis and what some of the key issues you wanted to address were, but also maybe some of the challenges you found in, in pulling it together. Thank you, John. Of course, this was a huge endeavor at the beginning, but then coming out with the coffee papers, receiving the first abstracts and suggestions from authors, what we have focused on was in two different, actually, parts of the special issue. And one was really about a historical analysis, and the second one was more looking into the current contemporary challenges that remain, or what we would call the long-lasting challenges. And so when we talk about the long-lasting challenges, was to look into two main issues, one on public health and one really related to organized crime and drug trafficking. So for us, what was very important is to bring in something new and something innovative in terms of the analysis and as contribution to the existing literature, but also to look into those places that not a lot of people look into, that we don't know a lot about and that we don't find a lot in international literature. It was also very important for us to work with authors that have access to sources and literatures in local languages and that have brought in a lot of data and a lot of evidence from the countries, data that usually international authors and researchers do not get access to. Thanks, Khalid. Well, why don't I go to Azel next? Azel, so your article really provides what is quite a novel and very comprehensive analysis of Azerbaijan's drug policy since, since its independence. And you really look at some of the historical, but also the socioeconomic and some of the geopolitical factors. So maybe you could elaborate on some of these factors and also talk about something I'm particularly interested in, which is the interplay between global drug policies and the manifestations at the national and local levels. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, John. I think what the article is trying to do is to really, in a way, rapidly review the history and to only pick out some aspects that would make sense in relation to global drug policy. But overall, I mean, in the last three decades since the independence from the USSR, the country kind of has seen a rather uneventful development on, on the drug policy front, both in terms of you know statistical reports uh, of people who habitually use drugs, inject drugs, or live with chronic conditions associated with drug use, for example, has historically been low in, in, the, in the region and in the country. Um, but also particularly when it comes to healthcare and harm reduction measures. And I think that to a large extent, this is substantiated by the lack of political will in the country to change things around. 
which, you know, on the one hand, it has attracted the attention of international donors and uh, alliances and trying to both kind of introduce new policy measures, gain insider access to monitoring and border control. But the other part of the reason for this kind of slow movement in drug policy is also due to the lack of empirical interest and reliable data sources and, and the human capital, so the expert knowledge. We know from the history of global drug policy examples that the states are most invested in harsh policing measures rather than sociocultural dynamics that affect the populations who use drugs. But for countries like Azerbaijan that has been attempting to balance political tensions that arose since the independence, since early 90s, and trying to navigate rising nationalism, which is one of the effects of the post-colonial state, and at the same time, simultaneously, this aspirational westernization to gain international economic recognition. So just as a backdrop of these things, drug policy becomes merely a tool of foreign policy agenda, as it appears. So it is in this niche that I think drug policy alliances and bodies like UN, they have the ability to influence local approaches to drug policy help maybe implement certain measures at times also enforce them and they're in the local parties they merely adopt those measures that align with the interests of the state rather than the population or the target population that we're trying to address no it's it's a very interesting case study and i i, I have to push on it a little bit because I'm, I'm i'm very interested in it but you know we traditionally have this in international relations and historical discourse, we have this traditional top-down narrative of a UN system basically enforcing a uniform set of policies around the world. And as I know, you know, because you talked about my work, I've tried to challenge that a little bit and say, well, you also have to look at the bottom up, whether national governments are just doing what they want to do and using an international regime to, to basically justify that. And I think your work sort of challenges that narrative. So I'd, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on that and how you might elaborate on that. Yes, I think this is a fair point. And in many regards, it is so. On the one hand, we do definitely need to recognize the need that individual countries and the local policy experts, they have to maintain this dialogue with the ongoing international policy debates and maintain their membership in, in these alliances and anti-drug coalitions. But at the same time, to be able to also argue for, you know, the historical aspect to it, in which case Azerbaijan's post-colonial position pertains mainly to the history with Russia rather than the, the West in this particular case, albeit bodies like UN or even EMCDDA and, you know, other alliances that encourage local monitoring through these kind of corporations, they do have a say in terms of, you know, what they can provide in exchange to recognizing the state's independence, the state's right to have a say at a table and form international corporations, which is so important for relatively newly independent countries like Azerbaijan. On the other hand, we do have a lot of theoretical debates. We do increasingly acknowledge the fact that, yes, the colonialism has played a role very much so in the ways drug policies and drug laws have been shaped and came to power. And relatively fragile states like Azerbaijan do still carry that baggage. And while trying to sort of become independent and implement its own policies, it still needs to also have the resources and expert knowledge kind of imported from outside. And this is where the Western bodies come into play. This is where it becomes another way of imposing certain values through offering aid, through offering alliances, and so on. Very, very interesting. Um, maybe if I go to Yon next, China is an extraordinarily important 
actor historically in international drug control. The, the great historian William McAllister once tried to surmise why we have an international drug control regime. And he effectively said it was because of the collapse of Qing China. And if, if you look, the very first meeting on international drug control took place in 1909 in Shanghai. So I think it's very, very interesting to have these deep historical analyses of the development of Chinese drug policy. And you really look at how the emergence of refined drugs in late 19th century China. And you also look at the, the subsequent establishment of the Administrative Bureau of Prohibited Drugs in 1922. So maybe you could elaborate on, on, on some of the key factors you think that led to the rise of refined drugs from their initial medical use to become a non-medical commodity in the country. And then how did the shifting political landscapes, both within China and outside, lead to the spread of drug misuse and ultimately attempts to regulate and control that? Yes, absolutely, John. Thank you very much. I think the key factors that uh, led to the rise of refined drugs from their initial medical use to becoming a non-medical commodity, including the driving force of the consumers and the intermediaries who met those those needs, including the medical missionaries who first introduced the refined drugs, including morphine and cocaine into China, and the agents for the burgeoning European and American pharmaceutical industries who were keen to build new markets in China. The anti-opium discourse and the movements were affected as well because uh, they pushed some opium smokers to shift to use refined drugs such as morphine. Regarding the shifts in political landscapes, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, there were at least two significant shifts. The first one was the collapse of Qing Dynasty in 1911, followed by the establishment of the Republic of China in 1912. The second was the demise of the powerful man, Yuan Shikai, in 1916. After that, China was in the hands of several disciples of Yuan Shikai and moved into a more chaotic uh, world of the period. The disturbance resulting from those shifts in political landscapes brought obstacles to regulating the flow of refined drugs. Refined drugs like morphine and cocaine were also medically used during this period, but this issue could not be the priority for the world of the authorities in different regions of China. And surprisingly, illicit supply could go to the illicit market without adequate regulation during the chaotic period. What was worse, some warlords even encouraged the cultivation of opium and extracted profits from the opium economy in, in their areas. Very, very interesting. Okay, maybe I could go to Khalid next, because really, this special issue looks to provide a very holistic overview of uh, drug production, trafficking, and, and overall usage in Asia. But it's also within the context of an extremely diverse geographical and cultural landscape, as you highlighted. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the, the interdisciplinarity and the, some of the in, interdisciplinary issues that came up when you were putting this together, and how you think this special issue pushes those forwards in both an academic, but also in a policy context. Yeah, what was really interesting in the special issue, and I think all those who listen to us have to look into the articles more in detail, is that we really have this perspective of showing actually through history how these policies have built up from bottom up in countries. For example, if we take the article of Misha Wazan on Lebanon and how the political life in Lebanon and how the geopolitical issues in the country have to some extent shaped the approach to drug policy and how drug policy was used as a pawn actually to respond to international pressure, but how it also lived in the socioeconomic life of the country. 
And so I think that what we try to do here is to have something that is very interdisciplinary with many, many different perspectives, many different countries. And this has also been an overview in almost in all of the articles where you can see at the same time the situation on the ground and the impacts in countries and in these local geographic settings, but also the global impact and how that has shaped the international response and how that is at the same time influenced by that same international response. Maybe to go back to Iceland to, to continue some of these these themes, and I think one of them that comes up to me, and I, I'm going to drive this in a slightly controversial direction because why not? Um, I think this concept of colonialism is an interesting one because we have a very Western-centric view of the colonial drivers of drug policy. But if we look at Azerbaijan, of course, if we think of imperialism or colonialism or however you'd want to call it, it was certainly Soviet imperialism in, in the second half of the century, which was the most important, I would imagine, for Azerbaijan drug policy. And that's something I think we see across Asia as well, is that it's a very neat and simple narrative to say that, well, it was Western imperialism, it was the US that drove in these countries. But historically, what we saw was first China was an incredibly important contributor and driver of international drug control. But then when we saw the decolonization period settle in after World War II, it was decolonized countries which were the core drivers of, of really strict and repressive prohibitions. And that actually goes all the way back to even the end of the 19th century in the Middle East. I understand it's a very politically cogent narrative to link it with these decolonization de discourses now. But I wonder, do we need to decolonize the decolonization narrative a little bit? So to throw that curveball in, uh, I, I would like to maybe ask Isel if you could talk a little bit about some of the specific examples where international influence and, and possibly Soviet, possibly multilateral, really drove Azerbaijani policy away from what was actually needed from local sociocultural and political realities. I do find this discussion very interesting as well, John, and I think you're absolutely right in pointing out that we might need a decolonizing debate within the decolonization discourse. I do have a background in science and technology studies, and this allows me to think about post-colonialism, particularly when it comes to drug policy, through the ideas of how science itself is produced, how we come to know facts, how we come to think about ideas that end up becoming evidence and becoming then enforcing policies. And I do try to quickly go over this argument in the article itself, showing that some of the frameworks that the international alliances have used to enforce this global uniformity or unity behind prohibition and its pillars have been, for example, human rights-based approach or also evidence-based approach. And I think that there is some niche theoretical debates in the post-colonial, but also in kind of critical drug studies that show the pitfalls of such kind of unifying concepts when it comes down to trying to find a way to allow every country to be a member around certain idea, unite behind certain ideas, that they do, in the end, end up reinforcing certain values. And because majority of these coalitions are formed in the Western part of the world, majority of the knowledge that is available to us that informs our discussions and debates like this come from Western, English-speaking, Anglo-American academic literature or even just political discussions, we do know that this is part of the debate. Yes, as you said, it, it informs the way we speak about colonialism. So this is, in a way, you know, just an entry point to discuss how can we think about these frames differently 
For example, Helen Keane, a professor at the Australian National University, talks about this who has contributed a lot to critical drug studies, talks about the limitations of human rights-based approaches that in a way they do end up or at least aim to produce a certain kind of citizen, a certain kind of drug-using subject, and that eventually ends up becoming this idea of normal citizen within particular type of societies. Does that image work across all the countries that are being rallied behind these conventions? Does it really fit the local customs, the values that remains open? And I think this is a good way to start talking about the effect of colonialism and, and try to be critical there, at least by asking certain questions. And then the other aspect, for example, again, going back to, you know, how do we know anything that we know around drugs and the policies and how those evidences come to be? For example, Khalid mentioned Kazakhstan, which is an absolutely great example of that. Central Asia has been such a major focus of international alliances and donors, and they have a lot more successful implementation examples of opiate substitution treatment programs, for example, or other harm reduction measures that work in, in prison settings and so on. These do come from the Western values and Western ideas of how we can minimize harm. And Azerbaijan is in a very similar situation, except that it hasn't caught up that much as in Central Asia. But, you know, we conducted research, for example, during the COVID pandemic, just the early years, trying to understand how does the treatment work? Can we still Still maintain the OSD in the country and the professionals have reported largely that it has been very difficult to keep this working because of a variety of local cultural factors that intervene, you know, the idea of whether a person who uses drugs, you know, needs to be a priority in a crisis situation like this, police interventions blocking the access and medical doctors refusing to provide free treatment. But it also goes back to, again, to the state's own values that opiate substitution program, as an example, for example, doesn't work well within our ideas of how the citizens should be treated when it comes down to so-called social diseases, for example, like drug use. These are the factors that eventually end up becoming this black box knowledge that, you know, even the same narrative that, oh, the Western informed harm reduction measures do not work, we need to adapt them. This and its own has been repeated for so long now, and we know this, but we have very little knowledge about how to go around it because the simple ways of thinking about how we produce scientific knowledge, how we produce empirical data is also very much Western. And so I think this will become a kind of a long process. It is a long process of trying to just find alternative ways of knowing. I, I very much agree with that. And I think your point about uh, critical drug policy studies highlighting this idea of, you know, about creating the, the ideal citizen. Um, and again, I think the Soviet Union is an, is an interesting example of that, where these repressive drug policies within the Soviet Union came from this idea that the drug user is not congruent with the ideal Soviet citizen, right? It should not exist under the perfect socialist system. So you have to treat it like a, a psychopathy or a disease or whatever it is. And so there's so many of these competing viewpoints and constructions of how you should deal with the problem and what people who use drugs are. I think there's just so much debate and so much discussion to be had around that. And that's where I think the point about decentering from the West a little bit could be useful in that. But very interesting. So, Yun, if I could go back to you and maybe to some more historical points on China as well. Um, you, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Administrative Bureau of Prohibited Drugs in China and its, and its early role within the country. And also factors that really influence drug consumption in the country during this time, such as the price, the accessibility, the role of intermediaries, etc. 
And then how did changing socioeconomic drivers, which you highlighted in the period of instability, really contribute to the resilience of the drug economy? And how was there a kind of dialectical relationship between the drug economy and the instability of the period? Yeah, I, about the role of this bureau, it's, uh, it's mainly about requiring the drug stores and the medicine shops to register at the bureau. It's about uh, regulating the medical use of refined drugs, also opium, actually. About the factors that affect the consumption of refined drugs, I think this discussion, the regulation, especially the anti-opium movements from the late 19th century, pushed some opium users to shift to refined drugs like morphine. Moreover, it, uh, it became cheaper in the 1910s, like drugs on morphine, and the gums records and the newspapers both indicate this. Accessibility was also a factor that influenced the consumption. For instance, in late 19th century China, the non-medical use of morphine was mainly reported in the coastal areas. Well, narcotic pills with morphine as ingredients were more common in inland areas because they were imported first and at a later time they were manufactured in coastal areas and then transported to inland areas of China. But regarding the intermediaries, they had an impact as well. Um, in my article on this special issue, I used the case of two passengers smuggled narcotic pills from Tianjin to northern Henan province in March 1919. And the police confiscated these pills. And analysis shows that those pills contained refined drugs, including morphine and heroin. Tianjin, the destination of the two smugglers, was a coastal city and then then the economic center of northern China. And the Henan was the inland province, around 500 miles away. Intermediaries like those two passengers played an essential role in expanding the markets of refined drugs. Those uh, social economic drivers contributed to the resilience of drug economy amidst the changing market strategies and the global pharmaceutical networks. For example, the intermediaries they could adapt to the changing global pharmaceutical networks. They used the opium and the morphine as materials to make narcotic pills. At first, and then import controls on morphine and cocaine were implemented in the 1900s. More new materials were used to manufacture various kinds of pills containing psychoactive substances such as heroin. About the, the short history of this period, as I mentioned in my article, while struggling in the narrow space between the colonial powers, the, the merchant groups, and the local authorities acting under the influence of warlords, this bureau was doomed to be short-lived. Its short history indicates the resilience of drug economy and the politicized control around the regulating on refining and the drugs in modern China. Very, very interesting. And really, it's a fascinating history. Um, okay, we're nearly out of time. And what I'd like to do is very briefly, if I could ask uh, each of our, our guests to maybe tell us something that they've taken away from this work and this special issue, whether from their own articles or from others that they've read. And just very briefly, something that, that they would like to impart to audiences as something that is either from the past or a potential future trend that we should be looking for. So maybe I could go to Khalid first. Drug policies are still a long, long, long work in process. And I think that they are in themselves interdisciplinary and that they require a lot of multi-stakeholder approach and that there is a need to be for a lot of research and work that still has to be done. I think that what we see is that what we know up until now is very much changing. And if there is one thing that I would take away is that we have a lot of challenges and a lot of long lasting issues and challenges that have not been responded to, but there's also many, many that are raising and coming up. 
So that could be in the patterns of use, that could be in the substances that are there, that could be in the capacity to enforce the policies, that could be in the capacity to bring in new policies or import them. Of course, uh, importing policies is always problematic, as Azel has been speaking about. But I would say that that is the biggest idea that I would take away from the special issue is that not only does it speak about the sources of the regime and in different countries and globally on the sources of the many challenges that we can still see today, but it also touches upon the new issues that are at hand and that are approaching. Thanks so much, Khalid. And thank you so much for all your hard work on this special issue and bringing it together. It's it's a real pleasure for us to host it at the journal as well. So just to say that and, and thank you to all the contributors as well. Um, okay, uh, maybe if I could go to Azel next, please. I listened to what Khalid said, and I absolutely agree. And it's there, there's very little that I can add onto that. But I guess for me, it's that the special issue has showed how important it is to allow, to give space for telling the stories of individual countries and kind of maybe deviate a little bit from this, um, you know, regional approaches to understanding drug policy, drug history, drug laws, but looking into very specific local, cultural, historical discourses. And I think that that's the biggest take for me. Hey, thank you, Hazel. And uh, last but not least, Jon, do you want to give your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with uh, the, the opinion of uh, Khalid and Hazel. Uh, well, for me, I think uh, join this uh, special issue have uh, I think firstly that contributes to the history well although not all the article in this special is historical research I think uh, they contribute to our understanding of the history of drug policy and also current issues I think uh, reading the fantastic articles in special issue have pushed me to think more about the country issues but I think it's basically very important for historians. The last one I think uh, it also had me to think more about the related issues about uh, drug policy. I think this will benefit my future research in this field. Great, well thank you Jan and, and thank you everyone for what was a, I think a very very interesting discussion and I think a, a, a deeply resonant discussion given policy trends and the upcoming UN meeting in two months time. So just to say thank you all again for being here. That's it for this episode of Crime Beyond Borders. I'd like to thank Yun Huang, Aizo Sultan and Khalid Tanasti. You can find the link to the special issue on drug policy history, design and practice in Asia in the summary to the show. For other research from the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development, head over to the website jayad.lse.ac.uk. Remember that it's all peer-reviewed and free to access. Thank you for listening.